0: On Rambam and Mishnah Torah, Hilchai's Tumas, the laws of the impurity <coughs> brought about by exposure to a corpse. And we're learning various laws, complications, situations which could occur. Again, this section of what we're learning in Rambam is primarily based upon the Mishnah, Mishnah Yot Oholot, dealing with the tempting impurity that comes about. That's one of the ways of it being exposed to impurity when it comes to a human corpse. So now, <coughs> he says, "I live 1, me, basada, or basada, someone who was digging in a field. He was digging for whatever. For worms. He was going fishing. Not to bait. Suddenly he discovers a whole bunch of corpses, a whole bunch of bodies buried in one large pit. Zalgavze, strewn one upon the other. one next to the other. So as he's about to say, that's not necessarily, or perhaps necessarily not, the sign that this is a cemetery. Because that's not the way you bury people in cemeteries. It shows that somebody dumped a bunch of bodies here. Or he found human corpses which were clearly murdered. Or or next scenario. Meis, he found a human corpse, a body. in a sitting position. Jews do not bury people in a sitting position. or head between the knees. That's not the way Jews bury people. So again, all of this is about, do we have to be concerned that he has a cemetery in his backyard? He does not have to be concerned. He does not have to suspect Shamo perhaps. a million years ago, this was a cemetery. not concerned. Or ten years ago, or whatever, long before he remembers. What does he do? The fact of the matter is, there are bodies here. What he does is... He takes the corpse, or corpses which he found. Furthermore... And he also takes all of the dirt, all of the soil. The soil. That's beneath it, the immediate surrounding soil. And he digs a little more karka in the virgin earth. Boys, he goes down another three fingers worth. In the A finger and etzba is .79 of an inch. And therefore, three fingers worth, if my iPhone calculator works early in the morning, 2.371 inches. He takes three inches into the virgin earth, in case, just to be safe. Umetzi and takes all of it, any part of the corpse, any part of the dirt surrounding the corpse, plus three more inches. Oshar Hasada, the and the rest of the field can be assumed as being a pure setting. Kishai, as it was, Kedem, Shihimsa, before he found it. And here we touch slightly upon something we're going to be touching a lot more upon when we get to financial laws. And that is Chazaka, the assumption. Until there's a problem, we have to assume there's no problem. So the assumption is there's no problem. You found the problem, this is the way you correct it, and it goes back to the no problem state. Because this is not a sign of a cemetery. This is a sign of a random uh, something. Now what is this earth that we're talking about? The author said, this earth, with the extra three fingers, where this is called this is called the t'vusa of the corpse. And as the Rambam explains, the term t'vusa refers to the convulsive movements a person makes before dying. So it refers to a mixture of the corpse's blood and other fluids with different substances. And again, as we have pointed out tragically, maybe not go from it ever again if you ever see footage, God forbid, of a terrorist attack. And there was, uh, unfortunately, there were too many of them. The Chabrik are always digging around and chipping uh, whatever material the blood landed on because of this law that we have to take everything that may have absorbed the blood of death and so on. So that's an interesting law. Law number one, there's no necessary sign of cemetery. Bayes law number two, sode a field. Shenergubo harugev, where obviously you found corpses who were murdered. That's what it looks like. What do you do? Again, not a cemetery. What you do is you painstakingly, or he painstakingly collects and gathers all of the human bones carefully, meticulously. And the field is pure. Why? Again, it's not a cemetery. It's a murder scene. Maybe a hundred years ago, but that's what happened. But it's not a burial ground. So you remove what is and you're finished. Or, similarly, similarly, if somebody disinteres a corpse from a grave in his field, now, as we mentioned and as we will mention specifically in the laws of mourning, in general, a corpse should never be moved from one grave to another. Because, you know, the expression you see very often in cemeteries, rest in peace. If you're going to keep moving, they're not resting in peace. But it is okay to move a corpse from property belonging to someone other than the deceased. So if I'm in my backyard and suddenly I find a corpse, it's my backyard. What are you doing in my backyard? If the guy doesn't answer you, you can move it. Other instances in general terms he brings down here, when permission is granted to move and disinter and rebury a corpse, is A, to bring its remains to Eretz soil so that the family decides they're going to purchase a plot in Israel, they're going to disinter. The relatives buried here and moved to Israel, it's better to have in mind to begin with. But if you didn't, that's a legal loophole. The second is, as I just pointed out, if it was originally buried with the intent that it be moved, and C, there's a possibility that the remains will be destroyed by floodwaters, or it's, it became a very dangerous war zone, where perhaps there will be non-Jewish uh, enemies of the Jewish people, or just VCs, who will come and destroy a cemetery or destroy a grave. So we have to maintain the safety and security of a... Great. Those are the three situations in general when we can move a corpse. Other than that, we should not move the corpse. But if for some reason it's okay to move it, then when somebody moves it, what do we do? Usually, human nature is. The, the uh, natural law states that uh, a corpse doesn't remain a corpse. It decays. So what you have are bones. After a certain amount of time. So you have to just carefully gather bone by bone. It may have become strewn around. You never know. And then it's pure. It says that the body of a sodic, a true tzaddik remains whole and undecayed. But normal people decay. That's the plan. Dust are thou, and to dust shalt thou return. The old famous verse. Or, if somebody decides for good reason to disinter a pit which was designated for stillborn fetuses to be placed in, we learned that a stillborn fetus has to be buried, but it doesn't need a grave, it doesn't need a marker, so they used to have a place where they used to bury it. Or a place where slain people were interred. Again, the way to do this is very carefully, very meticulously, one collects every bone and every bone fragment, and the rest of the place is returns to its original assumed state of purity. So again, the key here is, this is not a cemetery. This is a situation where there is a grave with one human being, with many fetuses, with many slain people, but it's not a cemetery. Because a cemetery, as we will learn, has a whole different law. Gimel 3, what if he's digging in his field, not bothering anybody, planting tulips, tiptoeing through the tulips. And this time, he found a corpse set exactly the way Jewish people bury corpses. This is a sign that this is a different ballgame it and the soil around it, as explained earlier. and so also in b'atzosh if he finds two, two corpses, Nato, he takes and each of them He made together with the three inches, the three finger breadths. I give the exact measurement according to the two point three seven inches of virgin soil around it, any stained soil, and three inches of virgin soil. Now, being that it was only one or two corpses, bodies, the balance of the field is still pure. It's not a cemetery because there was one corpse, or even two. However, the magic number in Jewish law is three. Schleishom may be finds three bodies, three corpses. This is a different story. Kalakomme Henmuk and Negani and again they're all situated in the way Jews bury the dead. Not sitting in not crouched. So if the distance between each corpse is from four to eight Amos, and Amos is about a foot and a half, between six to twelve feet. Kimele mito the Kebrao, which is the room you need for a coffin, and the people who are the coffin bearers. That's approximately four on the six feet. Now, a whole different rule applies. One has to be concerned and suspicious. Perhaps this is a cemetery. If this is a cemetery, taking a few bones away is not going to solve the problem. Because it's a cemetery. Bones all over the place. And again, what, what is our concern here? Our concern is, can a coin go there? Of course not. If somebody goes there, do they become ritually impure? Probably. Can they go into the base on English? Of course not. <clears throat> can they eat Tuma? Of course not. Can they eat sacrifice? Of course not. Now that we're suspicious that this may be a cemetery, but one needs to inspect from the last grave, the last body, found another 20 cubits, 30 feet, which is the distance of two caves, they used to bury in caves, and a courtyard between them. Maybe this was a bunch of caves and courtyards. We don't know what there was here. We're trying to determine, going backwards. We're, we're, we're becoming archaeologists. We're trying to determine what but who knows? So he needs to dig and inspect, and he needs to hire a crew. And if he did that, and he did that, and he did that, and he didn't find even one, he went 20 cubits and found nothing. And those 20 cubits can be deemed as pure. Even though it may be in a neighborhood of other corpses. But we have 20 clean cubits because we've inspected it. However, if he found another corpse at the end of 20, within 20, or at the end of 20 cubits, so now, he has to inspect another 20 cubits. The are double because now we have additional argument that this is a cemetery. And if one of the ones that he found, either in the beginning or in the end, was was obviously a murdered corpse a or in sitting position, again, not what Jews do. A Mishkab or lying position, not in the normal way of how we bury our dead. She, for example, as mentioned before, head between the knees. Now, he no longer has to check the 20 almas, because this is not a Jewish cemetery. This is a place where there is somebody dumped a corpse here, and certainly not Jewish people. He takes the corpse and the soil around it, the three inches. Because we can safely assume that these are non-Jews. So what's the point? So what if they're non-Jews? Ah, so I, I want to refer you back to what we learned towards the beginning here and what we learned in chapter 1 halacha 13 what is the law of the non-jewish corpse? we know a Jewish corpse brings about defilement in three or more ways touching carrying or tenting tenting includes standing over a grave but we learned in chapter one, thirteen, 13 and I'll just read it to you in English a non-Jewish corpse is impure brings about impurity but not through tenting or structure how do we know this at the Rambam? in chapter 1? halacha 13 it's tradition we know it from what was taught in Moshe at Lama and he brings proof. So the point is, the difference between a non Jewish corpse and a Jewish corpse is you have to touch the corpse itself. You have to carry the corpse itself in the case of a non Jew. A cemetery itself is not the problem. Whereas in the case of a Jew, if the person is tenting over a grave, he becomes impure because you have the tenting concept. And this is what he's saying in Allah Kaphor, Ha'ibekech a non Jewish corpse. They cannot bring about the defilement through a grave or a tent because you have to touch the corpse itself. Not tenting over it, and a grave is also like a tent. So therefore, even if there is a grave, you're not touching the corpse. Because the grave is almost like a tent. The grave tents over the, the coffin. If somebody touches the grave, he could be considered pure. Until he touches the corpse itself or carries it. That's the difference in halacha between a Jewish corpse and a non-Jewish corpse. How do we know this was taught by God to Moshe on Mount Sinai? So that's why when we can assume that this is not a Jewish cemetery, the law changes. Yes, you can't carry the non-Jewish corpse because it also brings about defilement, but you're not carrying it here. It's a cemetery. Maybe. It's a burial place. The law changes. Hey, five if a corpse is missing a limb, what kind of limb? had this limb, theoretically, been removed from a living person, that person would die, person cannot live without that limb, then this corpse missing the limb that one cannot live without does not have the law of Tfusa, that you have to take the surrounding soil with it, or, or the law that we have to check the neighborhood, the area, same goes for corpses. Found strewn in a revealed way upon the face of a field, you don't have to check the area for other corpses for a cemetery or take the earth with it. But as we mentioned earlier, and and he gathers carefully and meticulously, bone by bone, and everything is pure. However, if somebody is buried in somebody else's backyard without permission. We said earlier we may disinter Yes Yes, still the surrounding soil should be removed as well. But we don't have to inspect the neighborhood to see if it's a cemetery because it's my field. Six. Somebody finds three corpses buried the way Jews bury their corpses to begin with. A, or, a or he finds three hollows cut out in the wall of a cave, or a hollow, a grave and a crypt. Because these were various ways that people were buried in hollow areas in a cave, <coughs> in graves or crypts. This too is considered a cemetery neighborhood. And you have to keep checking. What if he finds two? and the existence of one that you knew previously about. This does not create a neighborhood of a cemetery. The only time we need to thoroughly examine the area is when we find three simultaneously. We said earlier you should check 20 cubits from the point of the corpse. How do we bring that about? How do we actualize that? Keep digging until he reaches the stone or the virgin earth. What's this stone or virgin earth? What does it mean? It means it's earth that's visibly never been worked with or or dug open. It just looks like it's the terrain, the natural terrain, the natural earth. That's what we mean what if somebody digs down even a hundred cubits down you know, by the time you dig a hundred cubits down that's 150 feet you're almost in China I mean, that's, that's far he probably hit the water quite a few times on the way even if he digs a hundred cubits down and he finds that this earth was plowed earth he finds that this you know, there could have been a city underneath you know how it goes so I lost my place uh, then he goes back to step one. He has to keep going until he gets to virgin earth. This is obviously not virgin earth. This is plowed earth. So there's activity here. He'll What if he hits water? Aha! Water is like virgin earth. And of course, as we know, different areas, the water table is higher or the water table is lower. But the fact is, whatever you're going to dig, sooner or later, you're going to hit water. If it may be sooner, or it may be later, or it may be much later. It's not safe now. He said we have to check another 20 cubits. Does that mean he has to dig one long ditch in a direct line? No. He can do one square (coughs) amma, skip an (coughs) amma, dig another square amma, skip another amma, so a bunch of pits, a bunch of holes. (coughs) To the end, there's never less than an amma, a foot and a half between graves, so he can assume that if he dug an amma's worth, a foot and a half by a foot and a half, and then he skipped a foot and a half, and did it again and again and again, and nothing is visible, then he's in good shape. Ches 8, or as we say in French, wheat. What if he was checking and inspecting? (coughs) And within the 20 cubits he reached, you know what he reached? Lenore, a river, an underground river. Or, he reached an irrigation channel. He reached a, a, a main water supply. That could be dangerous. Or, he reached a public thoroughfare. I guess a tunnel. No, actually, no. It's not necessarily underground. He's, he's approaching on the surface, maybe. He can stop. He no longer has to check because the river, or the channel, or the road, is a sign that he checked everything he had. Of because you don't have a cemetery that goes through a river. So, my assumption earlier of being underground was an erroneous assumption. It's on the surface. He offers a shelter. The person who removes this dirt, this soil, does this person become impure? No, not necessarily. Eli, in case of tumah, welcome tochav unless he finds something. Then he becomes impure. If he doesn't find a, a corpse or parts of a corpse or what have you, then he's still pure. But even if he's a Cohen, before he finds anything, he can eat tumah. However, if there was a landslide, an avalanche, and people are buried under the avalanche, and he's part of a crew that is digging even though he didn't find any corpses yet. <laughs> because he knows for certain that there are corpses, there are people buried under this avalanche, under this landslide. He's not exactly sure. So already, as he's digging, he knows for sure there's something there. In the other situation, he doesn't know for sure there's someone there. I'm going to have a drink of water. I said a blessing earlier. Yud 10. Landslides. God forbid. All of a sudden, the landslides. Gal told me, what if there was an impure landslide? I don't really know if there was an impure landslide because there are people saw people trapped there, buried there. And sooner or later, you have to dig and find the corpses. And this landslide became mixed in with two other landslides that do not necessarily have corpses in them. Nobody saw people there. So therefore, you have one clearly impure landslide scene, which became, I guess, interfaced with two others that are pure. So there are three landslide areas, and we're not sure what's what. It's a big mess. And what if he searches through one? And he finds, he gets to the bottom, and he finds that this is pure. Then who this area, which he got through, or he and his team got through, he got a whole team of people, is pronounced pure. And now, can him to go, there are people who want to go to the base on the go there; it's not a problem. Landslides cleaned up themselves. Are not impure. It's where there's a corpse buried that's impure. The Ashanim, more Ashanim, but the balance of the other two landslide areas, to Tameim, they are impure. B'odakshanim. What if they sifted through and got to the bottom of two? The Nimtzutayim, they found that they are pure. Not no corpse was found, and they really went everywhere. Hay to Haydn, then they are pronounced pure. B'ashlishi becheska and the third is now assumed to be the one with the corpses because there were witnesses who saw the corpses. B'odakshlost. What if now the crew went through all three, on Mosadaiyeh, and it was also found to be pure? There was no corpse. How could that be? There were people who saw corpses. The answer is, you now assume that they weren't looking too well. Cool They have to now all three assumed to be impure. Actually, be shlosh them. He has to check every one of the three. Actually, until he reaches hard rock or virgin earth. We are shlosh and then and only then can we assume that they're all three pure. What happened to the corpses? Whatever, they were taken. You now live a pit. When miscarried fetuses, stillborn fetuses are buried there. We learned earlier that a stillborn fetus must be buried, but not in a grave with a marker, but in an area where they bury stillborns. He finds this pit. by Torah law. Someone who tents over it, leans over it, creates a structure over it, even with his own body. Is defiled or even though, let's face it, there are all kinds of animals there: moles, hyenas, and so on and so forth, or other translations. And can't you assume that these tiny fetuses are no are long gone? Because animals will, will attack them. ain' mate. The doubt condition never supersedes the certain condition. We're certain that fetuses were buried there. We're doubtful whether they're still there, we have to assume they're still there. but in the if a woman had a stillborn there, Doing the pilo, and we're not even sure what this aborted fetus was whether it was a fetus it wasn't a fetus it was at a very early stage being that there are moles and ayin is there so the fact that we now have not one doubt but two doubts maybe it was not even impure to begin with because maybe it was not an aborted fetus maybe it was something else even if it was an aborted fetus maybe it's no longer there this is in halakhic terminology referred to and we need to remember this because we're going to deal with this a lot in the legal, in the financial arena called a spek speka. a doubt on top of a doubt or a compounded doubt perhaps the fetus wasn't developed enough to bring about impurity. What's that line? We learned earlier, 40 days. A fetus must mature 40 days before it can impart impurity. We learned that earlier. Perhaps it was 39 days, and even if it was 40 days, perhaps the animals hanging out in this area unearthed it and removed it. So that's called spek a double compounded doubt. Ah, a double compounded doubt has a more, much more liberal interpretation. You'd base 12, this is a fact, and 12 is the last paragraph of this chapter. And whenever you have a doubtful situation of impurity, by definition, doubt is rabbinic impurity, because Torah impurity must be certain. A biblical state of impurity can only be brought about when there is certainty. All doubtful situations, which we say, you're impure, in doubt, whether we're talking about purity and impurity, or we're talking about forbidden foods, or or we're talking about forbidden intimacies, or we're talking about prohibited acts on Shabbos, we're not sure, maybe yes, maybe no, these are only, and they only can be, rabbinic law, and therefore there are so many differences in application, beginning with punishment, and beginning with the many, many detailed applications. And nevertheless, something which by Torah law, if one would be certainly violating it, would result in the cutting off of the soul, a very severe punishment, certainly even biblically we shouldn't do it. Because by biblical laws we learned earlier, if somebody actually commits that transgression, he has to bring a doubtful guilt over. And they should be on the bill, as we already explained, in the laws of prohibited intimacies and so on. So what we're saying here is, is that even these, one should not even dream of doing them, even though, clearly speaking, by Torah law, only something that is certain can be biblically prohibited. End of chapter 9. Rambam, Mishnah Torah, Hilchis, <laughs> Tumas, makes the laws of... Impurity brought about by a human corpse, cadaver. Pedagog chapter 10, Aleph 1. We learned earlier about a rabbinic decree applicable to an area called a base hapras. And we talked about this earlier in chapter 2, halacha 16. And here the Rambam defines base hapras. A zehu base hapras. What is this term? Beis hapras. What does it refer to? Zeh, this refers to Hamokim, the place, Shenech bekever, where a grave has been plowed over. We know there was a grave. We know there was plowing done here. We're not 100% sure that the grave hit the plow, the plow hit the grave, but something happened here, maybe. For sure, maybe. The definite, maybe. Our concern is that in all likelihood, since the bones of the corpse are crushed, because that's what plows do, and they're spread out. That's the word nisparsu, we talked earlier, hapores, to spread. They've been spread all over this field. field has been plowed, there was a grave, and now there is bone fragment all over. Maybe. The so gozeros, our sages, issued, proclaimed, ordained a decree. They said that this should be treated as an impure setting, rabbinically, throughout the entire field where this grave has been plowed over. This law applies even if somebody plowed over the coffin, which means it's very possible, if not probable, if not certain, that the coffin was not even disturbed because the plow was at a higher elevation than the coffin even if the coffin was buried under a marble slab, or a concrete slab, stone slab, in California there's something called an earthquake law, where they bury wooden coffins in concrete slabs. Now, it's very unlikely that a plow is going to really get through that concrete slab, or a marble slab, or what have you. Nevertheless, the law is the law. You plow a field, there's a grave there, the law applies. Furthermore, even if there were two stories, two floors high, of earth above the coffin, makes no difference. So again, we're not talking about the fact that we know for sure that a corpse was ground with this plowing process, but this is a rabbinic decree that was applied to, you're plowing a field where there's a grave, the practicality, the certainties, do not matter to us. And that's fairly common in law, where you say, hey, uh, the law is the law. This condition causes the condition of which means this field, which by rabbinic law, is considered rabbinically impure. Now, that's very nice, but how big... Of a base does this condition create? A Kamahunas Abesa Pras? How much what's the extent of the area that is declared a base The answer is Meya Ama ama A hundred by a hundred from the place of the grave. A hundred cubits square. Now that's a lot. A hundred cubits is about hundred and fifty feet. Because that is what our sages estimated a plough will drag something that gets coordinate. So it's a hundred cubits by a hundred cubits from the place of the corpse, of the grave. Base, Ruuba, this entire square, base Arbasi in this square is the amount of in our language acreage, the amount of soil a real estate in which one can plant a measurement of four saw saw is a measurement of grain. So this square of 100 by 100 can contain growth of four saw. that 's the measurement of base process. Commentaries explain that the idea of the Mishkan area was 50 by 100, and 50 by hundred we're told, could contain two saw. So if fifty by hundred can contain two saw, then hundred by hundred could contain four saw, double fifty by hundred. So this area of hundred cubits by hundred cubits, and its soil brings about defilement only if we touch it and carry it to make sure it, As we explained earlier, and what we also explained earlier, repeatedly, is the enai The OL. the tenting over it law, the structure law, does not apply. DNA does not apply. Why? Because this is only a rabbinic decree, and the rabbinic decree only applies to touching the corpse and carrying it, not being under the same roof. So, anyone who creates a structure or attending tenting or is under the same roof of any area of this is pure. The law of impurity only applies to touching the corpse itself, bone fragments or any of the lists we learned earlier or moving it. Gimel now detail what if he began to plow the grave? And he's whistling Dixie and moving right along and just doing his thing. That's what we used to say in the 60s. I'm doing my thing. No, these days nobody knows what that means. And before he finished the near ammo he shook the plow which means that for whatever reason, he cleaned out the plough, whatever was there is no longer there. Or he hit a rock. Or he hit a fence. So, again, the movement of whatever was caught in that plough is no longer caught. It's no longer dragging. Then he doesn't have to go the complete 100 feet or 100 cubits. But where he hits the rock, where he hits the fence, where he cleaned out, where he shook out the plough, that is the area which will boundary the Besapras. And the balance outside that area is pure. Why? Because this is not Kabbalah. This is logic. Because our concern is that he's dragging bone fragments, but whatever he's dragging in the plow never got to the space outside this area where he hit something or he cleaned it out. What if he plowed 50 cubits or more? And then he paused. And he went the other 50. The entire area is called the Besapras. Because he didn't hit a wall, he didn't hit a rock or clean out the plow. What if he continued to plow? He didn't stop at the boundary of 100 cubits. He kept on going to two hundred cubits we're not concerned about what goes on outside of a hundred cubits from the grave why? because we have ascertained the bones of a grave will not reach outside the hundred cubit area so it is not our concern now we can safely assume that buried bones we unearthed bones and we're not sure if they're human or they're animal we can safely assume that buried bones are human until someone who knows will come and say uh-uh, I know this I'm a veterinarian these are animal bones ok so they're animal bones but until we know that they're human bones, that's our assumption. Why? Because they're buried. The cheska so If we find unearthed bones, just bones laying around, then bones, then bones, shahen shabehen. We can safely assume they are animal bones. Why? Because animal bones are not buried. Until someone comes and says, "What are you talking about? These are human bones." Okay, so they're human bones. So we're talking about assumptions, halachic assumptions. Until we know they are human. And again, I must remind us, me and you and all of us, again and again and again. Who cares? Because we're concerned. Did this person become the and can he not go to the base on the onegers? Did this person become the and he has to purify himself? This is a serious concern. Is this a kohain? Can he eat ruma? or does he have to first purify himself? next scenario what if there was a pit a trench filled with human bones or there were human bones piled on top of the ground on top of the earth so here there was a large collection of human bones either in a trench or just sitting there and he plowed these bones together with a field or he plowed a field now a lot of talk about these words what does this mean it's a little bit sketchy so from the Rambam's wording he says here it appears that this leniency applies even if he Plow the entire field, only if it was known for a fact that there was a grave there, or some kind of situation. A shachorah shodish abed a sheninza or a plowed field where a grave was lost or found. I'm sorry. Yeah, this does not create a besapras. Why is that actually? goes al Because this rabbinic decree only applies to a state of impurity that was certain. And the plowing was certain. And in this case, it's not certain. Some of the commentaries say that there was the bones pile here, but he didn't plow that bone pile. But we're concerned that there were other bones. So if he plows a corpse in a field, he doesn't create these are unusual situations this rabbinic decree applies to only one situation there was a grave we know there was a grave and there was plowing done all the other situations are unusual even though some of them are quite blatant this is a rabbinic decree needless to say if somebody plows a grave over in someone else's field the rule is you can't do damage in somebody else's field you can't make a base out of somebody else's field we found a parallel to this you can't create an idol out of somebody else's object the rule is a person cannot forbid something that does not belong to him even if he's a partner but you, my partner, can't affect my head. A artist or a sharecropper, a apatrupus. Or an apatrupus is somebody who is a guardian, like orphans used to have a guardian, court appointed guardian. So they have interest, they have authority. A isa base None of you above can create a base because a partner is only a partner, he's not a full owner. A sharecropper only gets a share of the crop, he's not a full owner. A guardian is only a guardian for my territory, for my land. Therefore, you can't create a base of The Base edict was only created when one plows one's own field, which has a known grave. What if somebody plows? A grave over in his field, and then goes into his neighbor's field. So he did both. So if my field becomes declared impure by rabbinic decree, shouldn't yours? It's the same facts. He says no. Shalei Eisah Beisabras. His own field, he creates this condition. Beisabras. Vishal but the other guy's field, Eisah Beisabras. He doesn't make it. Because I cannot harm your field in a halachic situation. Obviously, I can harm your field. Like I can burn it down. But that's not what we're talking about. And this is actually discussed extensively. This doesn't make sense. When somebody declares something an idol, it's an idol. So I can't declare your object an idol. It's not mine to declare. But if I bring bone fragment into your field, it's it's impure. And the answer is, we're not talking about is it impure or is it not impure. We're talking about does the decree apply or not? The rabbinic decree decided by the rabbis. Okay, we touched upon this earlier. Many of these laws apply only to graves of Jewish people. We learned earlier that a non-Jewish corpse only creates a condition of impurity when we touch it, touch the bones, and move them. Not when we are there in the area, not when we tent over it. So what if a non-Jew plowed over a grave in his field? Does he create a Besapras condition? The answer is no. He does not create a Besapras. This rabbinic decree does not apply to a non-Jewish corpse. A non-Jewish grave that was plowed over. Zion. What if you have a base condition on the high ground and a pure, non-base condition on the low ground? And rain base flooded, the soil of the higher ground field, which is the base to the lower elevation field, which is not the base. The question is, will these rainwater sweep the impurity? What's impurity? Bone fragment. Will it sweep the bone fragment and will this decree apply even to the lower elevation field? The answer is no. Does not apply. Will be not even if the higher elevation field was reddish. I'm sorry. Even if the lower elevation field was reddish, and it's now white, like the higher elevation field, a or the lower elevation field was whitish, and now it's reddish, like the higher elevation, proof positive that the soil descended. The it is still pure. The decree of our rabbis does not apply. What's the rule here? What's the logic here? A base hapras does not create another base hapras. One such condition does not create another. And our sages only decreed impurity upon the earth itself, as it was after the plowing condition. Not earth that was moved by, inundated by floodwaters. Ches, beis hapras hazeh, this beis hapras, which again is a rabbinic condition, rabbinic decree condition, mutar limpeya bay that we may plant anything we want to, trees, bushes. asheroshim yerdim mishleisha. Why is that? Because the roots of the trees and the roots of the plantations will descend lower than three handbreadths. Why? Because the whole base hapras condition is only topsoil. That's the extent that the plow goes. Once you go below the plow line, it does not apply. Well, the rule is that a base of pros is pure if you go deeper than the base of elevation. Again, a plow is a machine. A plow is an implement of farming. It only goes so low. Because the grave, our concern is that the grave and bone fragments were spread over the field, but it doesn't go deep beneath the plow line. However, that's true when it comes to trees and other type of plantations which are harvested in such a way that you don't harvest the topsoil. Of course, we are concerned about this topsoil. Therefore, we can only plant stuff that is properly harvested. Meaning, without the soil. cut. The inzora, the akar box. if he planted stuff that is planted and then uprooted like vegetables, you take the soil with you, you, you just take it up, say <coughs> there. Then what he will do is he's gonna he's going to collect this produce, as And what he has to do to correct it is, he has to sift it, he has to put it through a straining system, a double strainer. That is, if it is regular crops. But if it's kidney kidneys, that's if it's a grain heap. But if it's beans, then Bishovesh, he has to strain it three times with three sifters. Triple sifter. Why? Because we're concerned that there is bone fragment as big as we learned earlier of barley corn. Therefore, the sifting process of two, a double sifting process for grain and a triple sifting process for beans will deal with this concern. The Seda, Bishovesh, he has to burn whatever straw there is and whatever growth there is of branches. We're concerned that we're talking about the shaft. lest there be a bone as big as a barley corn being topped and if we're gonna allow him to benefit from it, he's gonna sell it in some arguments, and he's gonna be selling bone fragments all over the place. If we go to a store, and we buy some vegetables, we're gonna be having vegetables with bone fragments. Therefore the sifting process was ordained if it has to do with anything that uproots the earth with it. But if it's merely harvesting a tree or what have you, or a bush, that's not a problem. Test nine. Sodesha hooksagoshi a field that was presumed, assumed, determined to be a base abras. Even if it's as big as four, which is the hundred by hundred, and even if it was next to a field of mud and like concretized mud, which can't be plowed, and even if a pure field encompasses it from four directions, so we still have to assume that this is a base. And... I'm sorry, I, I said this, I want to correct myself. A field that was established to be a base brass, even if it's for korin, a core, not for saw, but for korin, a core is a tremendous, tremendous volume that can hold 30 saw. So even if it's humongous, and even if it comes from a place of concretized mud, and even if it's surrounded by purity, it still assumes, it still has a presumption of impurity. Because it's been established as being a base brass. How can such a big field be established to be a brass? I guess there were quite a few graves that were plowed over there. Okay. yud motsoh the demitsiyanis We learned earlier that when we have a concern and we happen to know that a particular field has a grave within it, we should put a marker up, so that all future generations should know. What should we do? We should create a lime slab. What if he found a marked field? You see some kind of lime slab or some kind of symbol, but he has no idea what exactly it means. Does it mean that there is a grave right here? Because that's probably what it means. Does it mean it's a Besapras? What does it mean? In Yeshba, Ilon, if it has trees planted in it, then... We can safely assume that it's a Besapras situation where a grave was plowed over, because we learned earlier that the laws of tenting do not apply to a plowed-over grave area. Therefore, you're allowed to plant trees. Remember, we talked about the fact that planting trees is a problem with, oh well, with tenting, so if there's trees planted, it means that it's not a grave, but it's a base of Ain't But if there are no trees, our safe assumption is that there is a lost grave here. That's why there are no trees. Because where there are graves, there shouldn't be trees. As we have explained, well, let me say where there are graves, there shouldn't be trees unless it's a marked grave. We know exactly where the grave is and where the trees. are. This assumption, if there are trees, it's a base cross. If there are no trees, it's a lost grave. This assumption can only be made if in the region there is a scholarly elder a wise man, a knowledgeable Torah scholar, who will teach them, ah, oh, us. you can plant trees. Grave, you can't plant trees. Otherwise, it doesn't mean anything if nobody knows. If the messes are ignorant, then the symbol is not a symbol. She ain't called out the bikini because the average person is not. Thoroughly knowledgeable. The average Joe will not know that in a Beisapras you, uh, you can't plant trees. And in a lost baby can't plant trees. You'd all live. If somebody walks, remember we learned that in a Beisapras only imparts defilement if we touch the bone fragment. Or rabbinically, if we touch the soil. If we walk in a Beisapras, then we're walking on stones, like cobblestones, like pieces of stone, like I have in gardens today, they have stepping stones. There are two kinds of stepping stones. I'm sure you've all been on each kind. One wobbles when you walk on it. And the other does not wobble, but it's solid. If he walks on the kind that's solid, that does not wobble when people walk. In other words, if it's not wobbling, then he's on a solid surface, and he's not affecting the movement of the ground, and the movement of the ground is not affecting him. Law. he enters into this field, and he's riding upon another human being, someone giving him a ponyback ride. Or he's riding on an animal, a solid animal, where he's not uh, crushing the animal, and the animal's not wobbling. The animal's not saying, you're killing me, Larry. Then the person is pure, because the person does not move the base of soil directly. is... But if he walks on wobbly stepping stones that shake when you walk. not Even though he was careful and they didn't shake, but we're talking about the average condition of these stones, are that they shake? How they said, Tell me, then this person becomes impure, as if he walked on the soil itself. I made a brochure earlier, I'm just going to have some more. And so also, if one person navigated while he was sitting on another person, the person he's riding this pony back. The guy who's carrying him is shvach, he has no strength. His knees are shaking, banging one against the other. The shake of Ma'ides Kishunese, and his thighs would shake when he's carrying him, he's just not, he doesn't, he doesn't have it under control. Which means that the person who's being carried is directly impacting the ground. is riding an animal that has no koyak, he's riding an animal that's exhausted, that has no strength. Has no energy, no strength. What's the litmus test with an animal? That the animal is losing it? If the animal loses control of its bowels and it deprecates while riding. This, therefore, makes the person impure. Why? Because the animal is not really carrying him, but he's more like on the ground. Halachically, we look and we see it as if he's walking on his feet. Yud, base 12, the closing paragraph of this chapter. How do we purify a Beisapras? If somebody goes to purify this Beisapras which has been a rabbinic decree. Number one, the purification ritual process must be accomplished in the presence of two knowledgeable scholars who have knowledge of this law. Of all law, but specifically of this law. say. What is the procedure? How do we purify a Beisapras which has been determined to be a Beisapras? The answer is, as we collect, as all of the soil which can be moved from the entire surface of this field. How big is the field again? 100 cubits by 100 cubits from the grave. And he places it into a sieve that has, relatively speaking, small holes so that a bone fragment of even a barley corn size cannot get through. And then he strains it, he sieves it. And he removes anything that looks like a barley sized bone fragment or bigger. or And then if he meticulously, painstakingly goes through this process, then the field can be declared pure. But you have these two scholars to make sure it's done right. These two scholars are the ones that are the supervisors. There is another way, maybe an easier way, to bring in, two, uh, to, excuse me, to bring in three handbreadths of new soil from a different place. He calls a soil company, and they deliver a new topsoil of three handbreadths or more. I'm going to approximate about, if my memory serves me right, about 12 or 13 inches of topsoil. Or there's another way. He can call a company and remove three inches of topsoil. Because that's the topsoil of the plow. Not inches, I mean, three handbreadths. Three handbreadths, about 12 inches. This is considered pure. Give me, please, the khat commissioner, which has the measures. Thank you. Uh, now, what if he did half and half? Yeah. No-tau if he takes from one half, he removes three handbreadths. And then on the other half of the field, he adds three handbreadths. So he goes a little here and a little here. A handbreadth is 3.15 inches. So we're talking about oh, like 10 inches. Three handbreadths is 9.45 inches, according to the Okay. So he did. Half the field, he added three handbreadths of soil. The other half, he removed three handbreadths of soil. And he said, that's fine too. But the bottom line is, is that he's not dealing with the bone fragments. Not on the apple of the So What if he took away one-and-a-half hand-breaths, and he replaced this with other hand breadth and a half of soil, then really, accomplished nothing. Why? Because the contamination goes down three hand-breaths, and he only dealt with the top one-and-a-half hand-breaths. So also, if he leveled the ground, clearing a surface, smoothing it out, flattening it, this is how he interprets the word in this Ramah, he leveled it, and while he was leveling it, he checked the uh, and checked the hair above and below. Nothing. Doesn't help. However, it's by What if he paved it with stones that will not shake when a human being walks on it? Wonderful. This can now be declared pure. End of chapter 10. Rambam, Mishneh Torah, Hilcheis Tumas, the laws of impurity brought about by a human corpse. Pedic Achados of chapter 11. We learned earlier that there is another rabbinic decree. In addition to the base Abras decree we just learned in chapter 10, our sages also issued a decree called Eretz HaAmim, the land of the nations, diaspora, anywhere outside of Israel. Why? Because especially at the time that this decree was made, the Gentile nations were disrespecting the human remains. They were not properly interring them. And therefore, wherever you went, you were exposed to human remains. Certainly aborted fetuses of more than 40 days. They didn't respect the sanctity of the fetus. And therefore, our sages said, you're in any country outside of Israel, you come back, we have to assume you've been exposed to impurity. Before you go into the Besamikish, you've got to clean up. So he says, Eretam, in the land of the nations the Diaspora, To begin with, the decree only applied to the lands in the Diaspora, to its soil. In a base And it only defiled people who walked on it. A or touched it, and carried it. That was the first stage of this decree. However, Khazlu, they returned, they went back and revisited the issue. The Ghaz they decreed Al-Abira that the airspace of the diaspora should also be considered impure. And again, these are the days when people went to the Basamiddhish of to offer sacrifices when they ate sacrificial meat. And so on. This decree was extended to the airspace that even if somebody did not touch or carry this soil. He was in the airspace of this soil of the diaspora. Being that the person caused his head and majority of his body to enter the airspace of the diaspora, he becomes impure. And so also the law applies to to an earthenware vessel. Remember, we learned that earthenware vessels become impure when the impurity enters within them. Again, please look at this. Well, I'm not going to use a glass, I'm going to use a cup. Please look at this cup. By touching this cup, if it was an earthenware vessel, I don't contaminate it. But by placing the contamination within the airspace within it, I do contaminate it. If airspace is decreed by rabbis as being contaminated, then... Any earthenware vessel has airspace, has airspace, and it's automatically contaminated. The same goes for other materials. For utensils made of other materials, they also become impure by the second stage decree of not only soil, but airspace. However, the airspace decree is more lenient than the soil decree when it comes to the diaspora. Tumas, the defilement of the airspace, of the diaspora, also was not ordained to be as strict as the soil, but much more lenient. How is that? Because if somebody is exposed to the impurity of the soil of the diaspora, if it was Kohen food that became exposed to this impure, by rabbinic decree, soil, if it was sacrifice food, then by rabbinic law, we require this Kohen food or this sacrifice food to be consumed in flame. Now that's a pretty brazen statement, that a rabbinic decree will cause holy food to be burned. That's serious stuff. Because you can't burn holy food for no reason. (coughs) However, I'm sorry. Furthermore, Similarly speaking, if somebody becomes defiled with the soil of the diaspora earth, Tomei Tumashiva, by Rabbinic law, this person becomes impure. For how long? For seven days. Wow. That's like Torah law. And the only way you can regain the state of purity is by the sprinkling of the waters of the mixture of the red heifer, which again is a, a biblical law. But Rabbinic law says you want to regain purity from this Rabbinic application, you should do the sprinkling of the red heifer mixture. Why not? So that is the soil decree. But the airspace decree does not have that stringency. It's not seven days as he's going to say. It's one day and it's not purification by red heifer application, it's purification by immersion in a mikvah and sunset. Inside, does not require the sprinkling of the mixture of the red heifer, third and seventh day, only immersion in a mikvah same day. The head of Shavish and the sun has to set. Even the fact that the sun has to set is kind of a severe rabbinic application because other rabbinic applications say that just immersion is sufficient. Similarly speaking, when Kohanic food called rumah, or holy sacrificial food, became impure due to the air space, they are held in suspense, in abeyance. We don't eat them, we don't burn them, because it's not so simple to burn holy food. It's a serious event, so therefore you just have it sit around until it becomes exposed to a real impurity. This condition of diaspora soil, this condition of the field where a corpse was plowed over, called the Besapras, They only bring about the defilement, as stated earlier, when we actually have direct contact by touching and carrying the bone fragments. Or, in this case, by touching and carrying the soil, which is the decree. Now, how much soil do you have to touch and carry? What's the size, the amount, the volume, of earth necessary to bring about this defilement? The answer is, like the seal for sacks. Back then, they used to have traveling sacks, like we have suitcases, you know, like Samsonite, they used to have shmuelite. They, they carried traveling sacks. And how did they seal the sack? They had this earth-like compound, which created a seal. It was made from earth-like material, from earth. The size of this seal is the volume, minimum volume. So he says, how can we determine how big that is? The heat. He said, or who? He said, I'll tell you exactly, says the Rambam. It's like the large bowl of a sack maker's needle. A sack maker is a guy who makes traveling sacks. He has a needle with a large bowl on it, which is placed on top in order to contain this seal. That's how much. So now we know. By the way, if you've seen any sack makers, they have them in almost every mall. They have sack makers with big needles and bowls. Okay, I'm being facetious. I shouldn't do that. Now I'm, uh, in addition to being facetious, looking for my place. Here we go. What if soil of the diaspora, what if soil of the Beis Hapras is visible on a vegetable, again, sometimes in very natural stores, in farmer's markets, you'll see the vegetable with the soil. So here we have soil from the Beis Hapras, or soil from the diaspora. It says, imported from Guatemala. Imported from San Francisco. That's the diaspora. So you'll have the soil on the vegetable. And you're in Israel, obviously. If there exists in one of the area of the vegetable, on one vegetable, enough volume, like this ball of the seal of carrying sack seals, betame, then that's sufficient volume to bring about defilement. But if not, you can't say that a bunch of vegetables that have a bunch of bowls of soil on them can combine into this minimum. No, there's no combination procedure. No process of combination. This law only applies to the natural state of the soil. Not to a combination of many other lumps of soil. In fact, to prove it, Ma said there was a story. Bless you. boys There were FedExes. You don't think they had FedEx back then? They had FedEx. They had FedExes. Overnight packages. I'm just kidding. They had mail. Letters that came from the diaspora and they were sealed because they were highly confidential, they were going to the young sons of the high priest, to the high priest family so they were sealed and there were so many seals in this sack of letters that if you added it up it had like a saw or two saws of seals, every letter has a seal, It's a truckload but still our sages were not concerned because it was a summary volume, it was a total accumulated volume because not one of the seals had enough of a minimum we don't combine the earth in seals or in any other Valid how many tanuri mut tolermentally somebody imports, ovens, cups, other earthenware utensils from the diaspora. So earthenware is earth, or it's a clay that comes from the earth. Actually, Husoko in kiln? it was burned or fired up in a kiln and process completed to make a mission better Then it's considered earth. And it's impure because of the diaspora earth, that's for sure. Meshe husaku, once it was fired up in a kiln, then it loses the soil or earth. Of defilement. Now, being that it's imported as utensils, it takes on another form of defilement, the airspace of the diaspora. So you can't win for losing. However, the benefit here is, is that, as we learned earlier, that earthenware can never spread its contamination to people or vessels, only to foods, as we will learn. As we have learned and as we will learn. He refers back here to chapter 5, halacha 6, and of course, much later, we'll go into much more detail. But in chapter 5, halacha 6, he says, when an earthenware vessel container touched the corpse, it does not impart ritual impurity, neither to a person, nor to another earthenware container, nor to any other utensil. Because the earthenware container never became a primary source, etc., etc., okay. Etc., etc. Uh, hey, five. I'm just going to have a little tea. I made a earlier. This is the law of a hiker, or a biker. I'm thinking about the biker. Diker. What if somebody walks in the diaspora? He goes through mountains and boulders. He comes back from touring the Grand Canyon. Because it's the diaspora, I'm kidding about the Grand Canyon, any mountains, any boulders, the person is impure for seven days. Because we're concerned that there may be impurity, and in general, we're concerned with the diaspora. So it's not like we're concerned with the corpse, but we're concerned with the exposure. Mayom, what if he journeys through the sea? He goes on an ocean cruise, or places flooded by waves. here. He is pure from this condition of touching the land of the diaspora. But Tommy, however, is impure, exposed to the air space of the diaspora, which, as we learned earlier, has a much more lenient application. Soil is seven days of impurity and to be purified by the third and seventh day application of the mixture of the red after, and airspace is purity of that one day, immersion in a mikvah and sunset. Now comes an interesting situation, which back then was only hypothetical, and today we know exactly what he's talking about. If somebody entered into the diaspora airspace, but he himself was not in the airspace, but he was in something else, what does it mean? Where he was in a cabinet, and somebody tossed the cabinet through the airspace, or in a chest, or in a closet, or let's talk nowadays, in an airplane. If you fly through the airspace of Eretz Anu, of the diaspora, Talmidei one becomes impure, so that the airplane will not protect you. zoruk eina koru because the tenting or structure of a structure which can be tossed and moved about is not considered a structure, and therefore, because it's not a structure, it does not protect from this decree of impurity. What about the area called Syria, literally Syria, or the areas adjacent to Israel, which were Kamsi Kamsa, so so yes, Israel, and no Israel? Afora, Tome, its soil has been declared impure. Shekhut's Loras, like the diaspora, but its airspace has not been declared impure. Like our sages did not decree Al upon the airspace of Syria. <coughs> if there was an area that was literally adjacent one edge to the other to Israel, and there was nothing in between, not a land of another nation, or a cemetery, or even this field where a grave was plowed over. Then the halacha would say that you can't enter into a, into its airspace in a chest or a box, or in our case, in an airplane, because you're not going over anything else. And the rule of airspace is more lenient. Provided that you will not touch the soil. The same applies for two: the diaspora area adjacent to Israel, being there's no place of impurity. As you can check to see that there's nothing impure as one passes over. to do and want to be pure. Why? Because being contained in a box is more lenient in this condition. Now we're moving along too. within Israel itself. There were certain periods, like Roman occupation, and others where certain cities were clearly inhabited by non-Jews, even though they were parts of Israel. So there were either they were either Jew-free, or there was a Jew here and there, but it was a non-Jewish city. Even though it's Israel, by this rabbinic law it still implies impurity. Remember, during this time there was a second base on English. They still maintain ritual purity. Until you check and inspect, because we're concerned with this non-Jewish city that perhaps they would treat stillborn fetuses inappropriately. A Jew has to bury a stillborn fetus. We're concerned that the nations of the world will just toss them. So therefore, this law applies. We're concerned that this whole city is considered an impure arena. Ches eight the What about Kohain food? What about sacrifice food that became defiled because they were in a area inhabited by non-Jews? And we hold them in abeyance in suspense, as we saw as we talked earlier. We don't eat, but they say we don't burn it. How long does he have to be in the place in order to be able to check out the situation? Our boy has to be there for forty days. Why? Because our primary concern is the fetus. The fetus does not become a contaminable fetus until after forty days after conception. So we have to be in a situation where the woman has to be able to become pregnant. The topical should lose a forty-day plus fetus. So we're talking about how long the non Jew has to be in the area until we have to be concerned. We're not talking about how long does the Jew have to be there. The Jew is there for a second, he becomes contaminated by this rabbinic law. any if our primary concern, or our only concern, is the contamination of a forty day plus fetus. If a man has no woman with him, so there is no possibility of anybody conceiving, still, as long as this non Jew was there for forty days, his dwelling place, his apartment is considered impure until it will be checked thoroughly. Why? There's no woman there, so there's no fetus possible. Because we want the law to be across the board, and if we start making differences, there'll be confusion. And then there will be dwellings where there will be a woman who could have aborted a fetus and just left around, and we'll say, wow, down the block So this is the law of Lake Lub not to make difference. Furthermore, it doesn't even have to be an adult, but it could be even a person who is a slave, even a person who's a eunuch who can't reproduce, even a woman who can't reproduce on her own, even a child, nine years old, who is a minor, still creates the situation where it's considered the dwelling place of a Gentile, and it has this application. The Jewish people used to train their household, even a slave, even a child, even a Jewish woman, everyone was trained, even though there were no great scholars necessary, necessarily, they would be trained to search for existing fetuses. Remember, this was a time when you had to maintain ritual purity. So everybody was trained. So if you had one of these people living with this non Jew, then we don't have to check because we assume that everything is under control. Then what would they be searching for? What would they be looking What do they check? What we'll about checking. What do you need to check? You check the places where a person would toss a fetus. Where's that? Habibin, the septic drains. That's a good place. the cisterns. Asruchim, the toxic waters. Any garbage area. So that's what we look for. That's the logical place of where the fetus would be placed. On the other hand, any place that's accessible enough or large enough for a pig or a weasel to drag this fetus out. And we know pigs and weasels enjoy the consumption of human fetuses. We don't have to check them because the assumption is that they're not there. We can safely assume that the animal will have dragged it away from there. What if a dwelling of an angel was destroyed? The body can still maintain its purity until it is inspected thoroughly. it's torches, covered walkways, and do not have this decree of the dwelling of an angel when it comes to fetuses because in a porch area, a canopied area, there's no place to hide a fetus. There is no place. Now he goes on to say, This decree does not apply to the following ten list of places where simply it's not practical for the non-Jew to conceal a stillborn or a, a, an aborted fetus of 40 days plus, 40 days after conception of plus. The fee, because it's not a permanent dwelling place. Our sages did not apply this decree, and we're talking about a decree which is applied in certain conditions and not applied in certain conditions. these two places. One is Arab tents. Again, it's probably to portable, movable, for this decree to be applied. or, In our world, a sukkah, a hut, a rubber tents, a storage areas, vachikra and roofed areas, shall be on pillars, like patios, the inland without walls, open wall patios, the hayn which are summer areas, you have a open wall patio, a base and a gatehouse, a guardhouse, a guard booth, and the open space of a courtyard, on a bathhouse, and a workshop where arrows and other weapons are fashioned, and Ha legioness and soldiers, barracks, all of these places, may be assumed pure. What about the store of an non-Jew? A jew is in his place of business. Would fetuses be buried there as well? We're not concerned about treating this as the dwelling of an non-Jew concerned with burying corpses, their dead fetuses. Unless he also lived in the store. There are many people who have a home store. That's something else. A courtyard Which has been determined to be defiled because it's considered a dwelling place of an non-Jew and they're not concerned with how they bury their dead. Its entryway gateway in its space. And this does not apply in the diaspora because we don't have decrees upon decrees. You'd bes the closing paragraph of this chapter. Gentile cities, which are swallowed up into Israel, and he brings up certain examples, like a place called Sisi's and its suburbs, and its suburbs. where, in the Talmudic era, the Romans built these cities on borders of Eretz Israel, which were sparsely, if at all, inhabited by Jews. And although Israel, the Holy Land, surrounded by four sides, they are still considered because of their inhabitants, part of the diaspora for the purpose of purity laws even though they're exempt from the laws of tithing and sabbatical laws because we say for all practical purposes they're not Israel but this decree of being defiled like a city in the diaspora does not apply furthermore we know that the Jewish people used to make pilgrimages to go to the holy temple on the three festivals Jews in Babylon would also make pilgrimages if they were able to and they had highways and byways where they used to travel on the main road and they had supplies and they had water wells and so on. The question is, are these roadways, which go through non-Jewish communities, are these considered impure? He says, no. We assume that these roadways, are, our us are maintained in a state of purity, because that's what they are. They're roadways for thousands and hundreds of thousands of pilgrims. So they have to maintain ritual purity. Even though, technically, they are in the land of the nations, but there were teams of people who were assigned to make sure that these roadways maintain ritual purity. End of chapter 11.